Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today we're going to be discussing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and also what's been going on on Twitter and President Trump, executive orders, and quite a lot of fun. To discuss this topic, joining me is the Alec Director of the Communications and Technology Task Force, Jonathan Howenschild. Jonathan, thanks so much for uh, zooming in here today. Well, thanks for having this discussion. Of course. And uh, joining Jonathan are two of his esteemed colleagues in the tech policy world. First is Ash Kazarian, Director of Civil Liberties at Tech Freedom. Ash, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And joining us is also Carl Zabo. He's the Vice President and General Counsel at NetChoice. Carl, thank you so much. Glad to be here. Of course. So just to set the table a little bit for some of our listeners who maybe aren't aware of the current events or exactly what has been going on right now, can you guys tell us what's been going on between Twitter and Trump in the last few days? Why is this such a hot topic now as opposed to generally when we discuss just it in the realm of policy discussion? Well, I can start. I think it's a hot topic because the president said he wants to revoke a whole law a law that made the internet we know possible. It's a hot topic because we're in an election year. It's a hot topic because our country and the world is going through a pandemic. And it's also going through very tough conversations that need to be had about race in America. So online spaces are one of the key targets where people go to have this discussion and to educate themselves and also to learn about the news and what's going on live. So we need to protect them more than ever. Yeah, I mean, this is not necessarily a, a new experience that we're seeing. We're heading into a hotly contentious election. Both sides of the political aisle are terrified of losing, but they're also worried that somebody's going to put their finger on the scale and move the outcome one way or another. For a long while, we've been seeing kind of complaints from Republicans about you know, complaints about censorship or limitation of content. And what you're seeing most recently is kind of an outgrowth of that in what the president has done. This is with the executive order where he finally took all of the ongoing complaints he's had about potential limitations on platforms and inculcated it into the executive order. So it, it seems to be a lot more politics than it is legitimate policy. And let's also look at the specific fact pattern as to why the executive order happened. Essentially, later in May, Trump tweeted something out about the potential for election fraud and California's ballot harvesting and mail-in ballot situation. Twitter, a few days later, decided that they were going to fact check the president. And rather than changing the tweet, rather than changing the content, simply added this statement that some may, you know, fact check, some may contest the truth of this. And you could click on a link and find out the information that kind of contradicted what the president was saying. That ultimately is what led to the executive order. I would also add before we move on, because it's important to say now up front, that Twitter is responsible for the fact check or whatever we call the disclaimer, that thing they put, because that's something, that's content that they created. So everyone unleashing their anger on 
Section 230 is the most misguided thing I have ever seen. And it's exceptionally disappointing from people who are real lawyers like Senator Ted Cruz, who has a degree from Harvard Law School, Senator Josh Hawley, who also, like me, attended Yale Law School. I'm pretty sure they taught him this. And he knows the law. But they are using this as an opportunity to amend a law that's completely misguided and not based on even a fact. So it's clear where most of my guests here today, I think, stand on the issue. Can you guys take a moment and be a devil's advocate? So why are some people arguing that this order is necessary? What are the merits of the order, if any? And maybe secondary to that, what does the order try to do? Well, let's do this in in an order of opposite order that you gave us. So let's dive into what the order actually does. First off, something needs to be said about two versions, the leaked version and then the final version that we saw. Uh, We definitely saw that the final version was slightly adjusted because the leaked version got a storm of criticism and people can check out a very detailed breakdown that Tech Freedom did on our Twitter page. But overall, the order makes few proclamations, cites cases that are not relevant anymore, and then asks agencies to take a myriad of actions that are very vaguely described to investigate or to go after the bias. So the fact that the order already establishes that there is an anti-conservative bias, while no one has seen empirical evidence of that, that's problematic in itself. I am very aware that some conservative voices feel like they're being silenced, and I don't dismiss their feelings. However, Let's look at the trending topics or posts who get the most engagement. I believe today it's Candace Owens. So saying that, you know, there's there's silence or anything like that without empirical evidence is just wrong to begin with. And before I pass it on to Carl, who can dive into what agencies were asked to do, I would also say that basis for a lot of these actions that the order asks the agencies to take is the anti-bias task force that was assembled last week and their findings. And their findings are 16,000 petitions or whatever that is, letters that were sent to the White House and collected by the White House. I do not believe, to the best of my knowledge, that they even went through them. So they just said, okay, 16,000 people complained about bias. It might be a random person in Bangladesh sending this note to the website. There, is no, there was no identification that if it was American citizens or anyone even living in America, I could have sent something. I didn't, but I could have, and it could have been me reciting Pushkin. And they would have counted that as a claim against the bias of tech companies. So I think we need to look at the evidence before we even claim that there is bias. And now I'm going to let Carl speak on the agency part. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think... What you're seeing as part of the preamble in this executive order, kind of the lead up to the actual calls in the executive order, are things that sound good initially until you start to unpack it. The the final paragraph of the first section says, you know, we must foster and protect diverse viewpoints in today's environment where all Americans can have a voice. So... That I mean, that's something that's very much at Alex values, right? Anybody can come to an Alec meeting, they, you know, is, anybody can listen, anyone can speak. But then the order kind of flips on that. And it says, we need to have diverse viewpoints, but we want to set ground rules on what those viewpoints can be. 
And that's basically the type of arguments we constantly hear coming from both sides of the political spectrum. There's too much of bad speech out there. And bad speech is defined as anything that I don't like. That's kind of what this order is doing. Now, what does it actually try to accomplish? Well, its constitutionality is already being challenged in court by the Center for Democracy and Technology. They filed a motion to enjoin the executive order just a couple days ago. And what you have is a misreading of law by presumably a number of attorneys in the White House who helped to write this. They misread the black letter law of 47 USC 230, and they do what smart attorneys do. They choose what to include and what to exclude. And instead of just looking at the merits of what the law actually says, they do kind of selective editing in it. The order then goes on to command the Department of Commerce's subdivision, the NTIA, to begin investigating potential bias and request that two independent federal agencies, the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communications Commission, do their own investigations. And then finally, it asks the Department of Justice to open an investigation and start collecting data on possible biases in the online ecosystem. Now, some of these the president can do, like telling the NTIA and the Department of Commerce to go look at it. He can tell the Department of Justice to open an investigation But I think anyone who's been following the news pretty lately should be wary of open-ended Department of Justice investigations without clear rules and guidelines because mission creep is going to happen. You know that the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communications Commission's independent agencies would loathe to weigh in on this because they're already accused of political bias. So why would they actually engender that exact discussion by stepping into this minefield? So it's it's a very interesting document. I think at the end of the day, this may just be more blustery than it is legitimate policy going forward. However, I think the key part of this that out of everything that's listed in the executive order um, that we can talk about, if agencies act in a way that would stifle free speech or violate the First Amendment, obviously it will be challenged and found unconstitutional. So I mean, if they want to get into a court battle, I welcome it. Uh, However, the part that does worry me the most is that DOJ is also kind of given this task to propose legislation to amend Section 230. And we've already seen uh, Attorney General Barr collaborate with Congress on the Earned Act that not only was amending, and I mean, it still exists, is amending Section 230. It's also creating a backdoor to encryption, which opens up a whole other door of Fourth Amendment questions uh, that we probably can talk about in a separate podcast. But I think DOJ proposing new legislation, which probably would be even more sweeping in connection with president and attorney general together in the Oval Office, you know, stating that they do want to change Section 230 greatly is very concerning. And that's the part that we need to focus on. So, Jonathan, I want you to give our listeners your take a little bit, especially from your interesting nexus here where you really focus on state policy when it relates to technology policy. But to just kind of kick things off, what's your view on the order? And, you know, does the order even fix the perceived problem that we've kind of laid out that those who support the order are saying that it's going to fix? Yeah. And I think when you 
when you take a step back, you know, we've discussed some of the things that the supporters of the order would cite, uh, but I was on some uh, calls and webinars with, with other people, and some of the things they cite that they think this order is going to fix is that tech platforms are becoming too influential. They're becoming too powerful. They are the gateways of speech online. They look at decisions, for example, to remove Alex Jones or Laura Loomer as evidence of anti-conservative bias. They look at the decision to fact-check President Trump as evidence of bias, especially from my research. I have not yet seen Twitter fact-check any other political leader. Uh, So this would appear to be the first fact-check of a political leader. So they look at that, they see the influence, they see the problem, and for some reason they're obsessed with controlling social media and ensuring that their specific views are represented. And there is this fear that if Laura Loomer and Alex Jones are removed today, that their specific audience, their specific voice is going to be removed tomorrow. The next thing to disappear is going to be Fox News, Breitbart, um, Candace Owens, Turning Point. And so some of this is motivated by fear. And when you look at the executive order, it is not really predicated on ensuring that everyone has voices. It's ensuring that one specific political viewpoint has a voice online or preserves a voice online. And there's a particular danger in that, in that it leaves it to the government to determine what is or is not political speech and what kind of quantity each platform must host. In that respect, the the executive order isn't going to actually do what they think it's going to do. In fact, it's going to have the exact opposite impact. It's going to result in less speech uh, and, and fewer speech. Uh, There is right now an alternative to Twitter, and that is Gab. Hardly anyone is on Gab because it is an unmoderated platform, and you can find the craziest stuff out there. What you'll end up finding is that if the executive order has its way, Twitter and Facebook will look very different tomorrow than it does today. I can't say exactly what it looks like, but I would not be surprised if they just go on and say something like, you know what, it's just going to be no political content whatsoever. We'll have cute cat videos. You can post photos of your dog. Uh, You can tell us what you ate for breakfast. You can even tell us what you're going to do as long as it's not going to a political rally. But we're just not going to host any political content. So rather than ensure an equal voice for conservatives, it will result in no voice. So we spent a lot of time talking kind of broadly at first about the executive order, maybe some impetus behind it, a little bit of a devil's advocate argument as well. And then we went in depth a little bit, kind of talking about some of the problems and and maybe some of the issues with what it's even trying to solve. But at heart of the executive order, and we kind of started off with this discussion, Ash, you did when you were discussing how the order would revoke an entire law. So that law is Section 230. And I think it'd be really important for our listeners just to hear a little bit about what Section 230 is, where it comes from, and why is it so important. Right. Well, I'm happy to start and then hand it to a law professor to finish it. (laughs) But Section 230 was passed in 1996, and it was written by a Democrat and a Republican, Ron Wyden and Chris Cox. 
They were both in the House, I believe, back then. Ron Wyden now is a senator. And it was the thought behind it was basically these two very smart people. And Chris Cox is also a very thoughtful lawyer. He was reading about the cases that were happening about the websites that existed back then in 1996. And he saw that websites that didn't moderate at all and let all types of content, bad content, on their platform were not held liable for it. Whereas websites that did moderate and try to you know, make their platform look in an image of values that they had did get responsible for content created by third parties. So it kind of created this moderator's dilemma, right? Do you moderate? Do you create this space in, in an image that you wanted to? Or do you just let it go and make it the wild, wild west? So they wanted to eliminate that. And what is very important to say is because some critics, and I can't believe they do it because it is in the history books, it is in the legislative history, but what Wyden and Cox wrote then was just kind of put together with the Communications Decency Act and passed together. The goals behind Communication Decency Act in short were to get pornography off the internet. And um, Supreme Court in Reno versus ACLU in 1997 found all of Communications Decency Act aside from Section 230, unconstitutional. So now we have Section 230 and, you know, we have innovation and progress. And since that year, uh, we've seen this boom, incredible boom in economy, in just technology. We've had social um, networks be created. We've had an app industry. I mean, U.S. is the world leader for now, if we do not screw this up, is the world leader in technology. And I am not giving all of the credit to Section 230. Obviously, credit belongs with the amazing leaders and software engineers and people behind these companies. But also, Section 230 was a crucial part of creating the landscape for this to flourish. I think that uh, summarized it, it quite well. It's important to note that prior to Section 230, we did not really have this type of user-generated content environment that we take very much for granted today. Section 230 allows platforms to go through and if they see bad content, to remove it. And it was intentionally created as a subjective test, not an objective test. A subjective test means it's not what does the community think was the right decision to make. It is what did that platform think was the right decision to make. And this is very true to kind of conservative values. At the end of the day, you are a business, right? You get to decide what you think is best for your constituents, your users, or your buyers. And what that means is if I decide that, you know what, I don't think the people coming to my restaurant want to eat chicken sandwiches anymore. I'm taking chicken sandwiches off the menu. That's my right as a business owner. If a platform decides I don't want to have cat videos anymore, and they decide to remove cat videos, that's their decision. And as conservatives, we should embrace these values because it's very much business-centric. Businesses can choose what is best for their business. This is similar to the types of decisions you've seen in Masterpiece Cakes or Hobby Lobby, those types of decisions that have been celebrated by conservatives. So what Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act does, it says, you know what? Platforms can decide what's best for their users. We want to give them that power. And what that also did in Section 230 was said, even if you say, I'm going to remove all forms of pornography, let's pick something, from our website, from our platform, 
if you don't catch it all, you are not liable for what you don't catch. So it encourages what's called a good faith effort. It is essentially the digital version of what we have in the offline world of the Good Samaritan Law. Now, the Good Samaritan Law is something we as a society decided it's something we should have. You see somebody on the side of the road, they're not breathing, you give them CPR. It, while you're giving them CPR, if you accidentally break their ribs, they can't sue you because you were trying to do the right thing. That's what Section 230 does. It says, if you try to do the right thing, the thing that you think is right for your users, we're not going to blame you for stuff you take down. We're not going to blame you for stuff that gets left up. We're going to trust you to make the right choice. And that's very empowering. And then the final important thing from a conservative perspective that 230 does is the whole principle of individual responsibility. And the principle of individual responsibility in 230 means the platform, let's say Facebook, let's say Twitter, are not the ones responsible for what you or I or any of the listeners may post. The people posting it are responsible. And if we instead do a shifting of liability from the individuals to the platforms, we create a dangerous economic state where people are disincentivized to be civil online because at the end of the day, if somebody's going to get sued, it's probably going to be the one with the deep pockets and it's probably going to be the platform. So Section 230 is a very cleverly crafted law that ends up running very much in line with a lot of our conservative principles. Businesses can decide what's best for their users and personal responsibility. I just want to address the elephant in the room because a lot of conservatives are, you know, very worried that these tech companies, and I'm not going to deny it, I can't really give percentages, but, you know, um, most of the executives in these tech companies are liberal in their views. A lot of the employees who are based in Silicon Valley are liberal in their views. So that makes people on the right uncomfortable. I'm, you know, not denying that. However, I want to remind you of so many cases before this when, let's say, remember the Chick-fil-A and how outraged people on the right were that the left was bullying a company for something they did and the political beliefs they had internally and the donation they made? Issue on substance aside, like the right was outraged that the left was pressuring a private company. The Hobby Lobby case that Carl mentioned one of the attorneys on that case was now Senator Josh Hawley, who somehow forgot or maybe changed his mind that private companies should have and do have First Amendment rights. So while it is very hard to maybe grapple with the notion that, you know, a lot of the tech companies are liberal, even though I would say not all of them, and there's always, you know, the board of directors, their investors, and they range uh, on their political views, and I'm not one to really assess it. But at the same time, like let's let's go through a list of industries, banking, oil, I don't know, insurance industry, you name it. Most of those industries and the big companies in those industries are Republican donors. So either we're going to play this game and say, you know what, all the banks are Republican and like we should do something about that. Or say, you know what, you know, all the insurance companies have been donors to X campaign and we should do something about that. Or what we should do is apply the same principle and the same logic when we assess different companies and different sectors. Yeah, I think that's uh, an extremely important point, Ash. Um, really noble and uh, makes a lot of sense. Carl, I really liked what you were saying. First of all, I completely agree. 
Section 230 definitely seems you know, derivative and completely in line with how we think about our American principles of individual liberty and personal responsibility and totally in line with the First Amendment. Really interested to see a private company online that might want to ban cat videos. I think that would be a very terrible business model, but I'm very interested to see that sort of, you know, innovative new website come about. But Ash, kind of where you were turning our conversation, I want to delve a little bit more into, you were talking about bias when you first were bringing up, you were talking about how, you know, at different companies, Twitter, Google, Amazon, you know, name your tech company, a lot of just the practical situation is that executives and folks that do work at the organization are left-leaning. You know, they do donate to maybe Bernie Sanders or they are supportive of Joe Biden, whatever flavor they might like. How does that relate to Section 230 and content moderation? And, you know, can you discuss a little bit about maybe if there's been evidence of bias? Right. So the logical jump that you said, be devil's advocate, I don't want to be devil's advocate, but People who don't agree with me, they make the logical jump from executives and you know management in these companies tell their content moderator, moderators you know to moderate the right more than they moderate the left. I will say that first of all, there has been so many cases, so many cases of people left of center saying that they are being silenced, saying that their posts are being taken down, and. I mean, even a few years back, not right now, there was a Black Lives Matter activist who said that she posted a screenshot of threats that were sent to her and she was suspended. And it took her a very long time to get her account back up and things like that. And obviously, this is all anecdotal evidence, but it's also anecdotal evidence on the right when they claim that they have been suspended. So when we talk about the bias, like that's the logic that they make is, oh, these guys, you know, they flagged. Trump, but they didn't flag Joe. Or they, I think a day or two ago, we're recording this on June 4th, Snapchat announced that they are, I think, content moderating president's account and and or not helping him with his re-election campaign, something like that. I think it was, they just said they weren't going to promote his posts. So if you, it gets pushed yeah. up to the top. I, you know, I'm not the expert on it, but I think that's relatively that's how correct. it's working. Yeah. Yes. And well... Unfortunately, again, this is a private company and they can do how they wish. The big danger in trying to regulate these companies that we already seen, are seeing to happen is that we have foreign companies coming and dominating markets. If you look at 2020, the biggest growth that a tech company, a social media platform had was TikTok. And I have a piece that's, I think, about to come out in the American Conservative talking about how deeply tied with China TikTok is, even though they keep saying, oh, we're not Chinese company because I think to New York Times, they said they're not Chinese company because they're incorporated in the Cayman Islands. Anyway, point being is our whole Generation Z, the next generation, I'm a millennial, the younglings are all on TikTok. None of them use Facebook. And while we are trying to overregulate these tech companies, instead of you know asking for transparency and having a dialogue with them, others are coming and siphoning the data of the future of America. Well, it's a, a very ominous thought, Ash, and I think we just discovered our next podcast topic 
um, to bring you back here on Across the States. Unfortunately, we have been going at it for a little bit. I don't want to waste too much of our listeners' time here. I know all of your time is very valuable. But um, before I close out, I just wanted to give a brief moment. If there's anything pressing on any one of my guests' minds that you did not get to, please jump in now. I want to make sure uh, you get everything in that you'd like. Yeah, so I think one of the most important things for, for listeners to remember is that the online services like Facebook and Twitter and similar are what helped to propel President Trump into the White House. I think there are few who doubt that. It helped to propel President Obama into the White House as well. I think one of the reasons that you're seeing a lot of pushback from legacy political figures like Nancy Pelosi is because the political institutions are losing their power. And it's a real return of power to the people because now we have a voice. Now legislators, lawmakers of both political parties have greater voice. One of the things I think all conservatives should be worried about is if we were to dismantle these social networks, if we were to create our own social network where we can't reach middle America voters. Because just recently, uh, for example, Senator Cotton did an editorial in the New York Times and it was about uh, the protests going on. The New York Times editorial board has taken a lot of flack, and I think it's a safe assumption that we will not see similar types of editorials adopted by the New York Times. So as conservatives see the venues and means of getting their message out become smaller and smaller with only a handful of newspapers available, these social networks are kind of our last best hope to reach middle American voters. There are two things I wanted to mention to sign off. One is that back in 2004, and actually recently too, uh, left of center folks have asked FTC to look into Fox News and to look into if they were, you know, following along their principle of being fair and balanced. And FTC uh, said, we are not in the job of policing speech. And I believe this year uh, there was a lawsuit in Washington state against Fox News saying over their coronavirus coverage. And that was dismissed too. So let's never forget that government is not in the job of policing speech. And we should not ask our agencies to do that. That's what countries like China and Russia do. Um, number two, and the last one is a lot of misconceptions and using the words wrong. So Censorship can only be done by the government. When people say Twitter censored me, they're just saying it out wrong right away. Number two is, uh, which again, lawyers like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley keep repeating, is that you need to decide, platforms have to decide, are they a publisher or are they a platform? That's just not true. The law on purpose doesn't make them decide. The current law on the books. So please stop saying that. Let's have a conversation on the merits, but don't say that outright. And the last one is, Gentle reminder that the First Amendment protects Twitter from Trump. It does not protect Trump from Twitter. Yeah, I'm going to echo some of what was said. The first and most important thing for people to remember is that the First Amendment protects from an overzealous government. It is designed to protect the people from government action. No matter what Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, any social media company does, they're still a private actor. They do not have the ability to deprive you of life, liberty, or property at all. That only belongs to the government. That is why the Constitution exists. The second point that I would raise is that content moderation does more good than harm. 
it is administered by people who make mistakes and mistakes are going to be made. And we need to allow companies to continue to make them without threat of government action. I noted a story and I'll provide it for the show notes on CNN. I believe it was today, but I'll double check the, the date. And one of the interesting parts about this story is it's actually reporting on a study that looked at political engagement on Facebook. The interesting thing was conservatives by and far outpace liberals on Facebook engagement. So if you're going to say there's bias or that the conservatives are being silenced, then you have to ask why, as I'm looking at the chart, Ben Shapiro and Breitbart are the two highest performing political voices on Facebook. I mean, massively outperforming the most highly rated left-leaning outfit is the Young Turks. And Ben Shapiro and Breitbart alone are getting a 29 and 23% engagement, and the Young Turks are getting 3%. So this is an exponential engagement over supposedly left-leaning sources. And so we have to grapple with whether there is bias actually occurring. But when it comes to the president's executive order, we have to remember that something like this is more likely to lead to less speech, not to more speech. And we also have to question whether it's the proper role of government to evaluate the content of speech. In order for the agencies, including the attorney general, to fulfill this executive order, they have to look at the specific posts and the ones alleged to be removed and determine whether that speech is conservative or not. Well, what's going to happen in a Joe Biden administration or an Elizabeth Warren administration? That needle is going to move. All of a sudden, the propriety of speech is not going to be judged off of what people deem to be conservative or not conservative. It's going to be, does the government support this or not? Is this conservative enough? Is this too conservative for a Joe Biden administration? And what you'll end up seeing there is even more conservative speech removed but not because the platforms want to, but because they're forced to on a foundation laid by this executive order. Well, you've been joining us today to go into a deep dive of the recent Trump administration executive order pertaining to social media, Twitter, and Section 230. I've been your host, Dan Reynolds, and I've been sitting down with Ash Kazarian, Director of Civil Liberties at Tech Freedom. Ash, once again, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course. And Carl Zabo, Vice President and General Counsel over at NetChoice. Carl, thank you so much for joining and giving us all your wise uh, thoughts. Thank you, and uh, great job moderating. Thank you. And for all of our communications and technology topics, we have the ALEC Director of the Communications and Technology Task Force, Jonathan Howenschild. Thanks so much for setting up this whole conversation and joining the conversation today as well. Well, thanks for your time and thanks for hosting. Of course. And if you're interested in having your topics or ideas or to discuss something on the Alec Across the States podcast, don't hesitate to email us at acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.